service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. I'm Sinbad the Sailor, so hardy and hale. I live on an island on the back of a whale. Who's the most remarkable, extraordinary fellow? The Salem. The stories about Bob Crane are insane. He lived a double life, hiding his unrelenting addiction to sex and pornography behind the facade of a squeaky clean radio and TV star. That addiction led not only to frequent affairs with co-stars on one of the most popular television series of the 1960s, but to custom-built personal pornographic paradises in both his dressing room and his apartment. He was obsessed with photography and extramarital sexual exploits, obsessions that may have led to the end of his professional career and his life. And though his addictions may have dragged him to the abyss, Bob Crane was a born entertainer. The joy he received from making people smile was matched only by his need to fulfill his darkest desires, and he made great films, television shows, and radio programs. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Popeye the Sailor meets Sinbad the Sailor from 1936. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Randall Kleiser's Grease. And why would I play you that specific slice of automatic, systematic, hydromatic cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on June 29, 1978. And that was the day that Bob Crane was found brutally murdered in his apartment in Scottsdale, Arizona surrounded by countless examples of his carnal fascinations. On this episode, a double life, pornographic paradises, a brutal murder, and Bob Crane. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season five, Hollywoodland. Marilyn Monroe was exhausted. She was also a consummate professional. 
So even though she was dead tired from the daily grind of the world's most in-demand actress, she pretended like she wanted to be sitting inside the KNX radio studio for an interview, whether she actually did or not. It was 1960. Marilyn Monroe had a movie to promote. George Cukor is scandalously titled Let's Make Love. Marilyn wasn't just a star. She was capital M Megawatt, an unprecedented sex symbol. Her star power, combined with a carefree attitude towards all things taboo, flipped the 1950s stuffy conservatism on its head. She was the woman all other women wanted to be and that every man wanted to be with. Men like this radio host sitting opposite her inside this Los Angeles studio. She knew he was trying to be discreet, but it was obvious. Couldn't stop stealing glances at her tight salmon-colored slacks and her light pink midriff sweater. But no matter where his eyes wandered, the radio host's focus remained on the job at hand, a polite and respectful interview. Because just like Marilyn Monroe, KNX host Bob Crane was also a consummate professional. Bob was used to stars of Marilyn Monroe's caliber. He wasn't just the morning radio host for the CBS station in LA. He was the most sought after early morning radio host in the country. He interviewed everyone, Frank Sinatra, Bob Hope, Jerry Lewis, even one of his personal heroes, Jack Lemmon, Marilyn's co-star in Some Like It Hot. Marilyn watched as Bob spun in his chair, sliding records in and out of their sleeves. One was a new song that had just been released. One was a three-second sound effect. Another was a perfectly cued-up punchline from a comedy album. He spun back to the microphone and cracked a joke before polishing off his riff with that pre-recorded punchline and the sound effect. And then he dropped a needle on another record. Marilyn had to hand it to him. The guy was good. She looked around the room. Turntables, records, a drum set, mixing table, a microphone. Bob Crane was more like an alchemist than a radio host. He was a well-oiled machine. He adjusted a few levels, arranged another set of records, and gave his producer in the next room a thumbs up. Then he turned to Marilyn and smiled as the record spun on the turntable, pumping out a light and easy tune to the hundreds of thousands of Angelinos engaged in their morning commute. Bob Crane was their morning commute. That commanding yet agreeable voice, wit as sharp as attack, happy-go-lucky persona. He was everyone's best friend, a guy you could trust. Even Marilyn found him trustworthy, even as his eyes traced her curves from top to bottom. She watched Bob watching her, and Marilyn was used to it, the way men looked at her, fawned over her, lost their minds at the sight of her. But this was different. Bob wasn't some tongue-tied gawker. He fired off questions in an inviting, playful manner. Did she like working with Jack and Tony Randall? What did she think about men whistling at her when she walked by? And Marilyn laughed. She took the question as a compliment, but she couldn't help but feel like each sentence that came out of his mouth was performing a balancing act. He was a professional, but he was also a flirt. It was like he was two people at once. Bob grinned, his eyes glimmered. He was comfortable in this radio studio, but he wanted more. He wanted to be Jack Lemmon or Tony Randall. He wanted to act opposite Marilyn Monroe. Acting was, after all, the natural progression for a man with his level of talent. And Bob's talent was obvious from an early age, as was his popularity. 
In his small cookie-cutter Connecticut hometown, he excelled in both athletics and music. He had a voice for radio. He made mock broadcasts for his high school sweetheart, Anne. After graduation, he made Anne his wife. Bob didn't drink, Bob didn't smoke, and not one person in town had a bad word to say about Bob. Bob was as wholesome as wholesome can get. But wholesome gets boring. Bob wanted something more, something beyond the conventional conservative New England life he'd been born into. Not a life on Main Street USA approving loan applications at the local bank for the next 40 years. He was an entertainer. He sent his demo tape to some local stations and eventually landed a gig behind a mic. He bounced from job to job over the next few years, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, climbing the corporate radio ladder as his abilities continued to land him bigger and better offers. He was light years beyond anyone else in the broadcasting booth, and the hard work paid off. When Bob landed the Primo KNX gig, he packed up his family and moved across the country to the land of 75 degree days and zero humidity. At first, Bob was a nobody in Los Angeles, just a drop of water in an ocean of talented and cutthroat entertainment industry types. So Bob did what he did best. He sold himself. He grinded it out. He entertained the morning commuters, flashed his smile at dozens of promotional events each month. Work, schmooze, network, repeat. Soon you heard Bob Crane's voice on the radio and you could picture his face. That nice guy persona. It didn't seem like an act. Bob rarely drank at all the notoriously booze-laden parties and when a social event ended, Bob returned to his three-bedroom home with the white picket fence and the nice family out there in San Fernando Valley. Saturdays were for Little League, Sundays were for church. Still, something deep within him craved more. More than just becoming the next Jack Lemon. More than having the perfect suburban wife on his arm, family and home, more than the ability to entertain. Bob's work ethic was maniacal. He was always on to the next thing. The bigger, the better. His professional desires were insatiable. And so were his desires of another kind. Bob and Marilyn shook hands as the interview ended. Bob complimented her recent performance one last time and mentioned he'd treasured the opportunity to work with her. And then, as he did with all his guests, Bob and Marilyn posed for a photo. Bob felt the urge deep in his gut and deep in his mind. He let his left hand slide down Marilyn's lower back. And the sensation of skin on skin, the proximity to a beautiful woman, one whose salacious celluloid success had implanted her image deep within the consciousness of every red-blooded male in the United States. She was so close to him right now. Bob was calm and collected on the outside, but on the inside, he was losing his goddamn mind. Everything fell away. He couldn't think of anything but her. Marilyn, those slacks, that sweater, and more importantly, what lay beneath them. He wouldn't get the chance to see for himself. The camera flashed and then it was all over. Marilyn was out the door for her next engagement. Bob jumped in his car for a quick commute home on the 101. He pulled into the driveway of his perfect house, perfectly manicured lawn, deep green, lush. The sunlight shimmered off at the front windows. He had built a family and a career 3,000 miles from where he started. He had made himself and it made him immensely proud.
but Bob was ready to take the next step. With that next step, however, came further temptations, deep-seated urges, libidinous desires, just waiting to slowly bubble to the surface. And when they did, nothing would ever be the same again. Patricia Olson was used to sound stages and studio lots, like Desilu Studios in Culver City. Well, technically it went by Cinema General Studios these days, but everyone still called it Desilu, the house that Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball built. And then there was RKO's 40 Acres back lot. Not to mention all those stages and lots that made Hollywood the town that it was. So many of the damn things that you sometimes lost track of which one you were standing on that day. Patricia stood on those sound stages day after day as Hilda, secretary to a Nazi colonel on the acclaimed campy World War II television sitcom Hogan's Heroes. She'd been here hundreds of times before, but this time was different. It was 1970. There was no live studio audience sitting in the seats. She wasn't in costume. The cameras weren't rolling. And though the setting was lacking its usual hustle and bustle, Patricia wasn't alone. Patricia wasn't the first actress to play Hilda. That would be Cynthia Lynn. But Cynthia was caught having an affair with her co-star, and her husband went ballistic. He gave her an ultimatum, their marriage or the show. Cynthia chose her marriage, which meant the show's producers needed to choose another well-endowed blonde actress to fill the void Cynthia left. Patricia Olson, under her nom de TV, Sigrid Valdez, filled that void. And not just as the secretary to Colonel Clink. She also took Cynthia Lynn's place in the torrid extramarital affair with her male co-star. The man standing to her right, right now on this soundstage. The man who played American Colonel Robert Hogan. The Hogan of Hogan's heroes, Bob Crane. It started slowly, some casual flirting on set. And that wasn't all that surprising. Bob Crane flirted with just about every woman who walked by and not in a creepy way. He was a smooth talker with a radiant smile. You're a basic nice guy. It was all good, clean fun. But as the relationship between Bob and Patricia's on-screen characters developed, so did their off-screen relationship. I'm not talking about two cast members sharing a meal. They stole off at every chance, secluded meetings behind closed doors. They left little doubt as to what was going on. And now, standing together on stage, Bob put his hand on Patricia's hand and he looked deep into her eyes, smiling that thousand-watt smile. And they recited marriage vows, but this was no rehearsal. Those vows were real and binding. The onset marriage of Bob Crane and Patricia Olson was the culmination of many years of blurred lines. And by 1970, every line in Bob Crane's personal and professional life had been blurred multiple times over. 10 years earlier, Bob was carving out his kingdom on the Los Angeles airwaves. Millions invited him into their cars and homes every morning, and Bob won them over day after day, week after week. He wasn't dirty or rude, he was just funny. And Bob did what he believed he had been put on earth to do, entertain people. And when the show was over, he shifted gears, quickly retreated into his private life, his very private life. 
Bob kept his family life separate from his career. His wife didn't accompany him to meetings. He rarely spoke of his family to co-workers, and he kept the door to his office at the KNX studio closed tight. When Bob went home to Tarzana, a small bedroom community in the valley, he was an adoring father. Two kids and another on the way. His home office was full of the things he liked and took pride in. Stacks of LPs, a drum set, audio recordings of his own shows, newspaper clippings of his career accolades, journals, and a growing assortment of photography equipment, which was quickly becoming his favorite hobby. He developed his photos in a private darkroom where he could document his family's major milestones and accomplishments. But the Leave it to Beaver suburbia facade wasn't quite what it seemed. Bob's first marriage to Anne, while externally a masterclass in marital bliss, had already been through the ringer. Back in 1950, the couple's first year of marriage, Bob carried out an affair with a woman while on assignment for his very first radio gig in Western New York, 300 miles away from his wife and everyone that he knew. It made him restless, anxious, agitated. He needed something, something to make him feel better. He needed a release, and he found it. Sex. Sex felt good. It filled that void that opened up as soon as he stepped away from his picture-perfect home life, which he often did. And the more he did it, the more he couldn't wait to do it again. He needed it, craved it. And Los Angeles was where that temptation began to get the best of him. LA wasn't upstate New York or his humdrum hometown of Connecticut. LA wasn't even a city, really. It was a whole other world, a world of women blondes, brunettes, tall and short, willing and able. They came from all over the country and landed here in the city of angels. And Bob didn't care if the women themselves were angels. Better for him if they were devils. Bob's middling celebrity status mixed with his traditionally handsome good looks and million dollar smile landed him plenty of opportunities to feed his impulses. His undeniable urges led to encounters in bars and clubs, not to mention from his professional orbit. Bob always ensured the sex was consensual. And the same way he carefully documented his professional and personal life, he documented his sexual adventures. Nude photos of his partners were a must. He wanted them to look just like the Playboy centerfolds he'd studied in detail behind closed doors. He was diligent, delicate, with his equipment and with the process. The photos were carefully processed and added to a collection that grew with time. A collection of his infidelities. Each shot a reminder that there was something out there that could soothe his anxieties. It was a collection that was for Bob's eyes only, and Bob was able to keep his personal activity behind closed doors in LA separate from his family life 10 miles northwest on the Ventura Highway, at least for a while. Because as his star continued to rise, Bob Crane was becoming impossible to ignore. Although the so-called Radio King wasn't technically number one in the ratings, he endeared himself to the major players in film and television who joined him in his studio. Those players brought him opportunities. First, as the voice of a radio announcer on an episode of The Twilight Zone. Then, small roles in the films returned to Peyton Place and Man Trap and guest appearances on The Alfred Hitchcock Hour and The Dick Van Dyke Show. By 1963, he was spending his mornings hosting his show on KNX and his afternoons and evenings portraying Dr. Dave Kelsey on The Donna Reed Show, one of the most popular TV shows in the country. He brought a comedic edge to the role that was both suggestive and brazen. Bob was a bona fide celebrity, and that meant more exposure, more influence, more opportunity. An opportunity knocked whenever there was downtime between his gigs. 
more than the radio show, more than Donna Reed. That in-between time was the time Bob cherished. That was the time that Bob did what Bob wanted to do. He documented every encounter, every tryst. After two years and 63 episodes of the Donna Reed Show, Bob had a collection of photos that could easily fill a small room. The notorious conservatism of the 1950s kept Bob's addiction swept under the rug. CBS was none the wiser when they tossed a pilot script for Hogan's Heroes on his desk. The hell was this? Only 20 years since the end of World War II and they're making a sitcom with bumbling Nazis and a laugh track? It sounded like a bad joke. The kind of joke that Bob didn't make. He'd seen what insensitive jokes could do to a person. He didn't want to offend anyone. A show like this could sink his career just as it was getting started. But on the other hand, look at the pros. It was a leading role in what would be a nationally broadcast primetime show. Bob wouldn't be a supporting character anymore. He would be the title character. And all reservations aside, he had to admit that script was funny. With Hogan's Heroes, Bob reached an even larger audience. Not just the millions of families who welcomed him into their living rooms on a weekly basis. Bob was more interested in the countless women he could welcome into his dressing room. As soon as Hogan's Heroes became a phenomenon, Bob wasn't just getting noticed, he was getting pursued. Approached in public while eating with his family, visited at home by crazed fans. Being that famous had its perks. It made picking up women effortless and the ease of access combined with Bob's proclivity made it impossible to continue concealing the separate life he was leading away from his family. But once again, the lines were blurring. There seemed to be no limit to the popularity of Hogan's heroes and no limit to the influence Bob wielded, but there was only so much he could handle. His addiction was like a boiling pot of water and the top was about to blow off. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. The room was dark, except for a flickering light coming from the projector. The reel clicked as it spooled through the machine. Thrown onto the wall were scenes featuring two men and multiple women coming in and out of frame. And their clothes had long since been tossed aside, and in the silence they engaged in compromising positions. Flesh pressed on flesh. For long stretches of time, it was hard to tell where one body ended and another began. Bob Crane, ever the entertainer for others, sat in the darkness and was entertained by his own image on the wall. If only they knew, his fans. They watched him on primetime, saw his face in advertisements, carried his likeness around on the front of novelty lunchboxes. They'd never seen him like this. This was a private show, performed for just himself, Bob Crane, and the man sitting next to him. The wealth and connections Bob had obtained from starring in one of the most popular television series in the country not only increased his extramarital offerings, it also meant introductions to industry insiders of all types, including a guy named John Carpenter, 
Not the John Carpenter who helped Snake Plissken get the fuck out of New York, but another John Carpenter, a regional sales manager for Sony. John introduced Bob to something that would revolutionize the way he curated his private collection of stripped-down snapshots, video recording. John Carpenter wasn't just Bob Crane's connection for video equipment. He was Bob's partner in debauchery. John would meet him on the road, would then use Bob's star power to pick up willing participants in bars and clubs. They returned back to their palace of choice for the evening, apartment, motel room, and they'd flip the camera on and record themselves and their guests. They shot on real film and developed celluloid on their own, using a bathroom as a dark room. And when the film was ready, they'd review it. You know, good clean fun, or whatever. The new technology took Bob's addictive tendencies to the next level. He was no longer capturing static images. These were living, breathing entries into his index of infidelity. And as he watched, his eyes darted over the bent and twisted bodies, the movements, the contortions. The pleasures and kinks laid as bare. His fascination had reached its zenith. And by 1977, Bob Crane and John Carpenter had been sharing sexual encounters with women in this way for the better part of a decade. But something was changing. Bob was growing weary. The conquest didn't arouse him in the way that they had in the past, back when part of the thrill was how wrong it was when he let his imagination run wild thinking about what was underneath Marilyn Monroe's sweater. Now it all felt so routine. Just another hookup, just another fuck. And to make matters worse, his addiction now had him in the throes of what would undoubtedly become his second divorce. Thinking about divorce always brought Cynthia Lynn back to mind. The full-blown affair he had with his Hogan's Heroes co-star that forced her exodus from the show. And then the divorce from his first wife, Anne and the onset marriage to his current wife, Patricia. Scattered throughout the mall were bars and strip clubs, escorts, the photos, the videos, so many fucking videos. The Robert Edward Crane Presidential Library of Videos. He was always sensitive to the feelings of others, sensitive to his own image, but somewhere along the way, he got reckless. His private dressing room on the set of Hogan's Heroes slowly became a storage space for his collection of nude photos on display for all to see. He didn't even try to hide them. He showed them to his fellow cast members. He figured surely they'd enjoy them just the way he did. Spoiler alert, they did not. And when Hogan's heroes came to an end, so did his squeaky clean image, tainted by divorce and affair. He was once seen as a caring father, a devoted husband, and a hardworking, sober, church-going man. But now, in the eyes of the public, Bob Crane had gone from an all-American success story to just another Hollywood sideshow. It didn't seem to matter to Bob. He kept growing his collection and kept showing off, like on the set of Disney's 1973 live-action feature, Super Dad. His co-stars were understandably concerned, and the smoke from the rumors about Bob caught fire, nixing any chance he had of becoming a mainstay with the mouse. The gigs dried up. In the 1975 sitcom he created, The Bob Crane Show, flamed out after only 14 episodes. His second marriage was squarely on the rocks, and Bob was now reduced to performing in dinner theater shows up and down the West Coast just to score a steady paycheck. His anxieties grew. With his new status as part-time pariah, the one thing he loved doing, entertaining people, was becoming harder and harder to do in any meaningful way. Bob once again filled the void with sex, but even that grew tiresome. Didn't matter. He couldn't stop doing it. 
just like he couldn't stop the thoughts that ate at him from the back of his brain. Those nagging suspicions that somewhere, somehow, a husband, a boyfriend, or a lover was going to lose his lady because of Bob. How many times had that happened? How many more times would it happen? Did those guys know where Bob lived? Did they come after him? Bob couldn't shake the questions from his head as the reel on the tape ran out and flapped against the projector like a flailing fish out of water. The pornographic images on the wall were now replaced with a blank white frame. When Bob stared into the nothingness on the wall, he turned to John, his most intimate confidant, didn't understand the way that Bob felt. How could he? He didn't have a career that was slowly dissolving in the same way. Bob needed to do something different. His fame had given him carte blanche to fulfill any carnal desire he dreamed of, but it was time to wake up from that dream. He would turn 50 soon. He needed to make a change, revive his career before it was too far gone. And that didn't suit John Carpenter in the least. It was bad enough that Bob's fall from the upper echelon of the Hollywood A-list meant they weren't scoring as many girls as they used to. If Bob wasn't getting tailed, then John wasn't getting tailed, but quitting altogether? Not doing this anymore? John took it personally. He was getting tossed aside, like he was no longer in the frame. Because Bob wasn't going to just refocus the lens he was seeing life through. He was gonna change out the lens altogether. It would have been the renaissance of Bob Crane, if only it wasn't already too late. June 29, 1978. Victoria Berry pulled into the parking lot of Winfield Apartments in Scottsdale. She exited the car only to be greeted by the punishing midday sun. Arizona could be fucking unbearable. She knew that, unlike her car, Bob Crane's place would be air-conditioned. Her co-star in the local dinner theater production of Beginner's Luck was staying here in this desert oasis. She made her way to Unit 132A and knocked. Nothing. The heat rose from the scalding pavement like steam from a skillet, and the sun bore down from above. It was well over 100 degrees. Victoria knocked again, and the hell was taking so long? Still, nothing. She placed her hand on the door handle. She knew Bob wouldn't mind if she just let herself in. As the door slowly creaked open, Victoria was met by a room devoid of light. The thick shades draped over the windows created a stark contrast to the blazing sun outside. She stepped in and closed the door. The darkness consumed her immediately. She called out for Bob. Silence. And as she stepped into the living room, her eyes began to adjust. And there was a television, some tripods, camera equipment, a coffee table full of mail, newspapers, paperwork. She called out for Bob again. And maybe he'd left and had forgotten to lock the door. And there was no way he was still sleeping. The man had no time for sleep. Still, may as well check. Victoria approached the bedroom door. She gave a polite knock and then slowly pushed the door open. She saw the blood first. Dark, fresh, splattered all over the walls. The ceiling was everywhere. It covered the bed. The face of the man laying there. That face had been beaten and bludgeoned. An electrical cord was wrapped tight around his neck. He was shirtless, his body was nearly unrecognizable, but Victoria knew who it was. It was Bob Crane, 
or at least it had been. Victoria screamed. She ran to Bob's neighbors for help, and the crime scene became a circus. It lacked any sense of proper security. Items were moved, used, and removed. The Maricopa County Medical Examiner crawled over Bob's body so that he could shave his head to further examine the wounds. Precious evidence may have been lost in the shuffle, including a specific selection of sex tapes. And there was no sign of forced entry into Bob's apartment, which led police to believe that he knew his killer. But who would commit such a brutal murder? A slighted lover? An enraged husband? Someone who happened to be on one of those missing tapes? Or maybe it was someone even closer to Bob than a one-night stand. Maybe someone who was with him on all of those one-night stands. Detectives found blood on the door of a rental car that was being used by John Carpenter, the sales manager for Sony, who turned Bob onto video recording and, for a while, was his closest confidant. It was a match for Bob Crane's blood type. In addition, there were eyewitness reports of an argument between Bob and John at a Scottsdale nightclub the night before Bob's body was discovered. John's motives seemed clear. Bob wanted out of their salacious lifestyle, and John did not. But there was no murder weapon, no hard evidence to connect John Carpenter to his friend's death. So no charges were brought. For 12 years, Bob Crane's murder remained unsolved. But in 1990, a Scottsdale detective found a previously overlooked photograph. Not one of the dirty pictures stashed in Unit 132A of the Winfield Apartments. This was an evidence photo that seemed to show brain tissue in John Carpenter's rental car. John was subsequently arrested and officially charged. But DNA testing of old samples went nowhere, and John's testimony shifted the focus back to the boyfriends and husbands of the many women Bob had illicit affairs with. John Carpenter was acquitted in 1994. He died in 1998. Nearly 20 years later, in 2016, a Fox News reporter in Phoenix retested the DNA samples found on John Carpenter's car using new technology. He revealed the results of the test live on TV. Finally, it seemed like there would be answers, that maybe the future would reach back into the past and deliver the truth once and for all. And the reporter went live on that night's broadcast and revealed to the world that the DNA found on John Carpenter's car door was not Bob Crane's. Bob Crane left behind so many documents of his conquests, his obsessions, or the things he was addicted to. But any documents pointed to what happened to him on the night of June 29, 1978, vanished quicker than contrast vanishes in an overexposed photograph. And that's a mystery that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.